Good evening. As Ben said, we're reading Proverbs chapter 7, starting on page 640. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I have fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God, that you show us the path of wisdom, And we pray that as we reflect on these, your words, together this afternoon, this evening, that you will speak to us and that you will teach us wisdom and teach us how to live your way in your world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're just joining us here in chapter 7, um, it might just help to to orientate us uh, to, to, to how we've got to where we are. So um, Proverbs uh, is uh, framed as, uh, it's more than advice, but it's instruction given by a mother and a father to their son, a son who will one day be king. And in order to be uh, the person that God has made him to be, he needs to learn wisdom. Uh, And as Ben pointed out to us, chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Living in God's world, knowing that it is his world, that he made it, that it all belongs to him, that we belong to him, is absolutely at the heart of that. 
That is the, in a sense, the main lesson, the basic lesson that everything else in Proverbs is helping us to understand. How do we live God's way in God's world? How do we allow the, the fear of God to be the beginning of wisdom for us? And over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, in giving advice to this young man, uh, the father and the mother together have been instructing him about uh, sex and about marriage uh, and about how powerful those things are uh, and how vital it is uh, to see the power of that. As we come into uh, chapter 7, we have just heard in chapter 6 just how deadly a particular sin the Bible speaks of, a particular way of turning away from God and in on ourselves uh, really is, and that is adultery. So chapter 6, verse 26, for a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Uh, To get into a position of uh, breaking apart the covenant bond of marriage an oath sworn before God uh, to uh, share life together for the rest of your earthly life. To get in the middle of that and break that produces terrible consequences, much worse than uh, going off and sleeping with a prostitute. They, by no means, is uh, Proverbs 6 trying to encourage that. It says, you know, recognize the deadly consequences that come with adultery. Uh, And then chapter 7, in in one sense, it's all about adultery. In another sense, it's not about adultery at all, primarily. Uh, Chapter 8, we meet uh, wisdom personified uh, as a woman. Uh, A woman uh, to whom it is right for this young man to devote himself completely. The opposite of wisdom in Proverbs is folly living as if God is not there, as if this is not his world, as though there are no consequences to living uh, in ways that uh, defy him. Because folly is defiance of God, not just ignorance of him. If you flick on past uh, chapter 8 and that personification of of wisdom as a woman, you then see uh, that um, it's probably headed in our Bibles, page 642, invitations of wisdom and folly. And so chapter 7 through chapter 9 are essentially two ways to live, two ways to love. To whom will this young man devote his heart? To wisdom or to folly? And folly is described in chapter 9, verses 13 to 18, in exactly the same way as um, the uh, adulterous woman, as it's headed in uh, our Bibles in chapter 7. And so this woman is the personification of folly, of living in defiance to God, living as if God were not there, or even worse, living as though God could be mocked. Uh, and so that idea of uh, adultery as this, uh, this sin that brings destruction into your life is then used as a way of understanding the danger of folly. So look down uh, at chapter 7 and verse 7. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. Uh, 
This is a warning story about a young man who is not wise. What happens to the person who lacks wisdom? What are the dangers such a person faces? Uh, And uh, this whole section from uh, verse 6 through to verse 23, it's described as saying, at the window of my house I looked down through the lattice. The the, the neck curtains are twitching. That's the sort of uh, conceit of it. Uh, And yet it's it's really a warning story. It's it's a word picture. Uh, And much of what's described could not possibly have been seen from the wisdom, uh, from the window of of the house. Uh, Unless uh, the writer has incredibly good eyesight and is brilliant at lip reading. uh, Because um, uh, verses 14 to 20 uh, describe the conversation that happens between these two people. It's not intended as a sort of, oh, look, this is what I observed. It's a, let me tell you what happens to foolish people. They fall into a trap. And as we read verses 6 to 23, the feeling we're supposed to get is the feeling you get when you're watching a horror movie and someone goes into the cellar on their own knowing that the murderer is down there. Do you know that feeling? Have you seen that sort of film? And what do you scream at the screen? No! Don't do it! You're definitely going to be the next body. And that is the image here, isn't it? Look at verse 22. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. This is someone walking into a trap that is going to spell destruction for him. And we're supposed to learn from this. Not about the folly of adultery. We've seen that in chapter 6. But knowing that... Here we see someone walking into deadly danger, unaware, blindly, and foolishly, like an animal walking into a hunter's snare. So what does it look like? What does, um, what does this trap look like? And really, what the writer gives us is the anatomy of temptation. What does it look like to give in to temptation? What sort of temptation works on the foolish person? Well, there are a number of things going on, aren't there, from uh, verse 10. And, and sorry, just to, just to highlight, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 12 Uh, we see that this is a personification. This is a woman who apparently has the power of being at every street corner. It's it's not straightforwardly just a story uh, about a young man falling for the wrong woman. It is a story in which folly is personified, in which temptation is personified within this sort of powerful uh, relationship. 
So uh, what are the sort of, what is the anatomy of temptation to sin in general that we find here in uh, chapter seven of the book of Proverbs? If you, if you were to put it in, in, in one word, it's fantasy. It's an imagined reality that is not real, that promises much, but delivers destruction. Uh, and our minds, I think, are supposed to be taken back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3, in which the serpent tempts the man and the woman into turning away from God, turning to themselves, uh, and choosing folly and rebellion. And so all the elements are there. Uh, the uh, woman tempted by the serpent looks at the fruit that is being offered and sees that it is pleasing for the eye and desirable. Uh, and so this woman in verse 10 presents herself as a fantasy. She's come out dressed like a prostitute. Uh, and um, what I understand about the ways uh, that uh, prostitutes dress is that they, they seek to embody a male fantasy of what a woman is. It, prostitution is not a real relationship, is it? It's a fantasy. It's a projection of desire. But it's not real. You're not meeting the real person. It's a transaction. But here, uh, temptation is presented as that sort of fantasy, as, as wish fulfillment, not reality, not offering real relationship. The kisses here are false. The promises are false. Look at uh, what she says in verse 15. I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I have found you. Now, as onlookers, we say, oh, come on, get real. He's not going to fall for that. She doesn't know him. The wise person thinks, I'm being flattered here. This isn't real. This isn't about relationship. This, isn't about, this actually isn't about me. But it's the key approach of the fraudster, isn't it, is to flatter. I think um, C.S. Lewis must have had this chapter in mind when he was writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's an extraordinary passage uh, in which he describes how Edmund, um, who comes into the, the magical land uh, of Narnia, which is, which is held by this evil force represented by this, uh, by this queen, who has enslaved the whole country. She's made it always winter, but never Christmas. She, is, she has a reign of terror. Uh, and Edmund's been warned about her. But she manages to get him on her side. She gives him Turkish delight. There's, there's the, the sort of kind of classic example of, uh, of something that promises much and delivers little. It's sweet, but it just leaves you wanting more. It doesn't fill you. It doesn't fulfill you. It doesn't give you health. It's not real food. But it bewitches him. But there's something else in it which I, th I think is just, is just vital to see. Uh, the queen is persuading him 
to bring his brothers and his brother and sisters secretly to her. She wants to destroy them. But this is what she says to Edmund. It's a lovely place, my house, said the queen. I'm sure you would like it. There are whole rooms filled with Turkish delight. And what's more, I have no children of my own. I want a nice boy whom I could bring up as a prince and who would be the king of Narnia when I'm gone. While he was prince, he would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long. And you are much the cleverest and handsomest young man I have ever met. I think I would like to make you the prince someday when you bring the others to visit me. Why not now, said Edmund. His face had become very red and his mouth and fingers were sticky. He did not look either clever or handsome, whatever the queen might say. Flattery. A promise that somehow you're special, that this is an opportunity for you to show just how special you are to become great. Now you can see how that's working in, in this scenario. It's you I've been looking for. You feel special. You feel important. You feel unique. Back in the Garden of Eden, that's the promise, isn't it? If you take this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. There's the promise that your best interests will be served by going down this route, that you're special, that you're unique. But from the outside, you can see that it's a fantasy. You can see it with Edmund. It's so transparent. He's a foolish little boy cramming Turkish delight into his face. But he believes the queen with disastrous results. So there's fantasy, there's flattery. There is a kind of magical thinking that suggests that somehow going the wrong way can be the right thing and that even God can be pleased with it. Look at verse 14. Today I have fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. So fellowship offerings were sacrificed at the temple but could then be taken home uh, so that uh, people could feast together sort of with God. And there's this sort of false religiosity that sort of says, I can somehow have God and sin. And that it won't affect it. That somehow, I can love God and reject God at the same time. That's how temptation so often works. Well, look, we'll, we'll go through the, the, the sort of things that God needs us to do and say he won't mind what else we do. We'll share the fellowship meal. We'll, we'll share the offering. It's easy to have that sort of double 
think in your life, isn't it? It's, 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 it's easy to think that you can sort of please God, I'll go to church, I'll go to the prayer meeting, I'll say my prayers, and then live as if he's not real. That's the picture. That's, that's the lie. Human beings caught up in sin tell themselves. I can be a good person and an upright person and do this and live like this. And then there is the promise that there will be no consequences. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. There'll be no consequences. No one will know. It'll be our secret. Now that can only be true, as we've seen already in the book of Proverbs, if there is no God who sees. But the promise that there are no consequences to what we do is vital to folly. It sits underneath foolishness living as if there were no God. I found this uh, little book, uh, The Way of Wisdom, by Timothy Keller, uh, written with his wife, Kathy, uh, an enormous help in, 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 in sort of understanding Proverbs and, and, and in it sort of becoming real to me. It's a devotional book. It's, it's designed to be read through in a year. I, I commend it to you highly. I think it would, you know, if you're looking for uh, just a set of readings to, to work through um, over the course of a year. Of course, you can start whenever. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be on the 1st of January. You don't need to put it off until uh, the next new year. But he uh, quotes a 17th century writer, Thomas Brooks, on this passage. It's actually the reading for April the 12th, so we're not there yet, but nonetheless... This is what he says. The 17th century writer Thomas Brooks in his book Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? (laughs) Argued that Satan tempts you by assuring that you can always repent later. Uh, And he quotes him like this. But he who now tempts you to sin upon the account that repentance is easy will ere long bring you to despair and forever destroy your soul and represent repentance as the most difficult and hardest work in the world. Have you ever had that whispered in your ear at a moment of decision? Well, you can always repent afterwards. It'll be easy. Don't worry, there are no consequences. But that's the way of folly. To choose to live as if God is not there is to court destruction. Now, wonderfully, in God's mercy, he grants repentance to sinners like us, to sinners like me. Many times I've fallen prey to that device. Well, you can always repent later. And in God's mercy, that has been possible. But it's a huge gamble to assume it'll always be possible isn't it? So there's the anatomy of the temptation. There's, there's this sort of fantasy world. It's unreal. Uh, a world that is the way I want it to be, not the way it is. 
a world that conforms to my desires, a world in which I am at the center. That's the flattery of sin. The flattery of temptation puts me, not God, at the center of reality. The double think, the magical thinking that imagines that I can live with God in his world as though he were not there. And the promise that there are no consequences. Such is folly. But what does this chapter actually offer us, offer the young man here, offer us as observers uh, to allow us to live with wisdom in a world that is full of temptations, all different kinds of temptations. Well, one thing this chapter does is says, you have to live in the real world and recognizes the real consequences of your decisions. The example I'm going to give you is um, to do with adultery. I've been very uh, struck by uh, this passage and this story told by Rob Parsons, who uh, has been involved for for many years in in trying to help people uh, in marriage. Uh, And it's an example of, of seeing real consequences to decisions and thus making wiser decisions. And let me just read it to you. This is what he says. I remember talking to a man who was about to leave his wife and two small children for a woman he'd become attracted to at work. He didn't really want to see me, but some friends and his wife had asked that he give his marriage this one last shot. It's apparent that he didn't really want to be there. His mind was made up. I told him I wouldn't keep him long, just five minutes. I said, I know you're in no mood to listen to my advice right now, so I won't give it. But I see more affairs in a week than many people observe in a lifetime. And I want to take a moment to tell you how the next two years are likely to pan out for you. I said that over the next six months, he would experience incredible sex, fascinating conversation, and at times he might say, I feel as if I'm alive for the first time in my life. This situation may last for a year or so, but shortly afterwards, as they lie in bed one night, one of them will say, no, not tonight. Or, did you put the rubbish out? In other words, this exciting, passion-filled relationship will begin to settle down to normal. And then I told him, you'll begin to forget what your children look like when they first wake up in the morning. I, I know you'll see them on weekends and at Christmas, but you'll begin to grieve that you're missing their childhood. Many fathers have that situation imposed on them, but you'll have chosen it. And then a very strange thing may occur. It's not impossible that you'll begin to think about the wife you have left. The things that annoy you so much now will not seem such a big deal. And then you may begin to appreciate qualities in her that mean little to you now. And at that moment, you may just gaze across the bed and the woman who's captivated you will not seem like the person she is to you today. He didn't say much, just thank you. But he never did leave his family. He and his wife have rediscovered a relationship they both thought was gone forever. And two kids have still got a father. Seeing reality is sobering. Now, look, in a group this size, it's not impossible that one, two, five, I don't know, 
amongst us this evening are thinking about starting an affair. Uh, you need to see the reality of where that'll lead. That is helpful and good defense. But it's actually not the main thing that, that this passage teaches us. It is vital that you see where the path you start walking down is going to lead eventually. But there is something much bigger here. And we skipped over it. It's the beginning of the passage. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you'll live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman. They will keep you from folly. Choosing this device, choosing the competing claims of love, of wisdom and folly, helps us to see that at absolute root, the question of wisdom is not a question simply of the mind, but of the heart. It's about love. And ultimately, it's about love for God. To be wise is not only to know that God is there, but to love him. So keep my commands, verse 2. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Now, the apple of your eye, we're used to that as a phrase. I'm not sure we all know exactly what it means. In, in, um, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to the pupil of your eye. That's the apple. It's not an apple at all, is it? But it's round, uh, and uh, it's precious to you. And actually, we're absolutely hardwired to protect that part of our eye. And if anything comes towards it, uh, we protect it above pretty much anything else. It's, it's the most, it stands for the thing that is most precious to you. So um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of thinking, why did my eye just shut? Uh, before something kind of, you know, an insect or something flies into your eyelid. Uh, your eyes are, are, are kind of wired beyond your kind of conscious control of your reactions to stop things going in. Uh, and, you know, if, you know, in a situation of danger, often it's our eyes that we protect. That, that's the point, is it's this thing that is utterly precious to you and that you will protect uh, and, uh, and guard jealously, uh, and you will look after it, whatever. Uh, and, 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 and so it's this, this picture of actual complete devotion. Now, this is the only time in the Old Testament of the Bible that the apple of a human being's eye is talked about. Three times uh, we hear about the apple of God's eye, and do you know what the apple of God's eye is? It's his people. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, we're told that he, he kept Jacob as the apple of his eye. Zechariah chapter 2 talks about how uh, God, uh, people who've, who have attacked God's people have attacked the apple of his eye. Psalm 17 is a prayer taking that idea uh, of um, uh, God viewing his people like that and saying, keep me as the apple of your eye. So the thing that you really need to have 
at the heart of your vision of reality is not just that God is there, but that he loves you. That he loves you to a degree that you find hard to imagine. That he treats you as the most precious thing in reality. And if you find that hard to believe, I invite you to consider God's actions in history. What has God done? What is the heart of what we know that God has done for his people? John chapter 3 verse 16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Now what that meant for God's Son was that God's Son himself would die so that his people could live. That's how much God loves you. That's how precious you are to God, that he gave everything for you. And once that becomes central to your vision of reality, when you know that actually it is totally false to say that God's way is not the way to fruitfulness, to fullness, to fulfillment. The temptations in the world offer us flattery, uh, offer us a, a kind of inflated view of ourselves, uh, an inflated uh, view of our importance uh, and centrality to reality. But God actually offers you, if you so often temptation strikes us at the point at which our self-esteem fails and offers to sort of bolster our sense of self, God says, I'll give you a sense of self. I love you enough that I was prepared that my son should die so that you can live. God's given everything for the sake of his people. Now when that starts to really make an impact on the landscape of your mind, then you learn what the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom really means. To have God in his place in your life is actually to be assured of your significance. Not based on flattery. Not because someone else wants something from you. But because he wants you and he was prepared to pay the highest imaginable price to have you. Do you see how that then begins to shape what you love and how you love. And that is the real heart of it. Just as we saw in chapter five that that the defense uh, for a marriage is to fully love each other. The defense for your soul is to know that God loves you and to learn to love him in return. That will mean that you're not like the simple young man who had no sense, who walked down the cellar steps at the beginning of the horror movie. But instead, that you stay safe 
live in God's way, in God's world. I'll lead us in a prayer briefly now, and then Catherine will come and lead us in our intercessions. Father, we thank you that though so often we are weak and foolish and try to live lives of fantasy in your world that aren't real, we believe all kinds of things that aren't true because it charms us to believe them. And we so often wander from the safety of the paths that you lay out for your people. But we thank you for your great love and we pray that you will teach us to know it and to know the wisdom that comes from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.